Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out. Anyway, let's dive into this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Vin and Ali podcast, where this week we're reviewing the book Daring Greatly by Bene Brown. We reviewed one of her earlier books uh, on our podcast. It was Gifts of Imperfection. And we loved it so much that we decided to jump in and do another one of Bene's books. So, yeah, let's get into this one, Ali. How are you going this week, brother? Yeah, very good, very good. Excited for this one. I think you hit it on the head. And that Brene Brown, the first episode of ours, is probably one of the most popular episodes that we've had. So it's really cool to do part two That's of so this. That's so interesting. That, to explore that is one of our most popular episodes. That's really – yeah. I find that a little sure. bit strange, but oh, well. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So you usually kick us off. Well, well, for those of you who don't know who Bernay Brown is, I think a couple of quick things. She's a researcher in the world of shame and vulnerability, and she hates calling herself a storyteller, but she is a really good storyteller, whether it's in her books or her really popular and famous TED Talk. That's her kind of area of expertise, and she's built out incredible programs that's being run in organizations all over the world. So Bernay Brown's a pretty amazing woman, and this book mm-hmm. is brilliant. Now, yep. the first thing in the book is the culture of, of like too much, which is mm. the never enough culture that we live in. And I love her example that she uses in the book where she says, the moment we wake up, we immediately say things like, oh, damn it, I didn't get enough sleep. And then by the end of the day, we say, oh, there wasn't enough time for me to do this and that. And ultimately in society, we tend to say things like, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough freedom. So just that not enough culture. It's, it's, it's one of the things that stops us from just living a wholehearted life. You know? yeah. and, and that's the first chapter it addresses that. For sure. I think that uh, the book speaks about scarcity and it was a little bit confronting reading that just because of how embedded scarcity is into our society, right? Because I was trying to think about, okay, well, we're probably going to kick off with that chapter and we're going to talk about the, the lack of having enough. And we've spoken about it a few times in other episodes as well. But it's really, really hard one to avoid. Like I know nowadays we all spruik the notion of, okay, well, let's do gratitude training and let's let's appreciate what we have. And, and these after a while, they nearly start feeling like throwaway lines because scarcity and that feeling of not enoughness is still just so existent, right? It doesn't matter what yeah. it is, whether it's a, you know, a product being released. It's like, oh, I've got to quickly log on and get it before it all sells out or (laughs) I'll make this post and hopefully I'll get this many likes on it. I think that's one of the examples that um, she uses in the book. And it's just everywhere and really hard to deal with. So I I wanted to really kick that off. And how do you deal with it? And what's a couple of the, what are a couple of the big things in your mind, your life at the moment where you feel that not enoughness? It's something that I haven't conquered, obviously. It's something that I still battle with all the time. 
And the not enough thing for me, it's, you know, it comes in a few different places. One area is I always struggle with the, I haven't lost enough weight. Oh, it's such a big game for me. I don't, I don't know why. For, for me, it's a big game for Pei Wen as well. You know, my wife, it, it's something that she struggles with and then something that she's always so self-conscious about. And I think some of it comes on to me as well. And I think, oh, damn it. Am I, am I this enough? You know, am I thin enough as well? And I think also because the media and everything. So that's one area I struggle with. And the way I deal with that is... <laughs> I don't think I deal with that very well, actually, thinking about it now. I, I, I struggle with it. Uh, so, you know, I guess this is about vulnerability. So I will share I struggle with it. I, I try to deal with it by only weighing myself in the morning when there's less yeah. food in me and then I'm the lightest during oh. the day. <laughs> You've got to hack it. Like even after a shower, like I think the shower dehydrates no, just a little bit. No. Yeah. 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 Oh, you go no. the other way. You think no. it's, see, I, I think the shower actually takes off like a hundred grams. No like- way. The shower adds because your hair's, well, that's because you got no hair. Because I've got <laughs> hair, water's in my hair. That's an extra 50 to 100 grams, I'm not willing to see on the scale. Hey, I've just got body hair. I've got a couple of kilos yeah. of body hair. So it's. Oh, that's so <laughs> gross. All these little driplets hanging on to your body. Yeah. Just oh, not on the head. Nah. Yeah, well, okay. Let's talk about it first. And then I, I can think yep. about the ways I combat it. But first is kind of that weight and, and, and whatnot. Second mm-hmm. is the area of you know making money, finances, wealth. Yep. And the third area, not enough, is. Am I am I being enough as a dad, as a husband, as a son? These are the main areas. I'm really proud to be able to say that I do sleep enough. <laughs> Funny enough, I, I don't That's wake good. up in the morning going, damn, I don't get enough sleep. That's something I've been able to fix in the last, I'd say, two years. I've really prioritized that. But those are the kind of three areas that I feel I'm not enough in and that I struggle with. What about you? Do you have any areas that you feel you're not enough in? Yeah, for sure. I think... For me, the historical one that's always crept up has been time. It's not enough time, you know, like time to explore, to do what I want, to work on this project. Like my my big one has always been just trying to get as much as I can done in a very small period of time. And that was a big part of my 20s, probably in 30s and like early thirties where it was like, okay, well how much can we pack in into this? And I used to fall into the trap of just filling up those buckets with just way too much. And then you end up in that scenario where you're doing a lot of things very poorly. So so it really is not enough or it's nearly too much in those cups and they're all overflowing and you try to juggle them and pour one out and then there's a leak in another one and then you've got to really fill it in. So that's probably been my one. Um, I think one that's been funny recently has been around like nearly collections. Like maybe it's because we've been in lockdown for for so long, but I've been like to try to put structure around the limitations of lockdowns and restrictions. I've been like, okay, so I'll make a list of say books that I want to read, uh, mm. TV shows I want to watch, projects that I want to finish. And then it's like, mm-hmm. they nearly become like these little collections. And then if you don't, finish that thing off. It just sits there in the back of your mind. It's like, ah, oh, it's not enough. Like I should be focusing on that a little bit more. And you could start doing really uh, stupid things mm. where you end up feeling that lack. It's like, oh, well, I wanted to do that today, but I didn't really quite get to it. So I think, yeah, I think 
a lot of mine are probably action orientated um, at the moment. That so, so your first one is you don't have enough time to do all the things you want. And then your second one is I didn't do all the things that I wanted to do. So yeah, very <laughs> action driven. Yeah, pretty similar where the, yeah. where the light comes in. And then it's more around just, yeah, practicing. Like my way of overcoming that then would then be just practicing perspective on those things and um, probably trying to detach a little bit from it being about, you know, me and my identity. So it's like, okay, well, it's fine. There's actually plenty of time, you know, and just reshaping that story off. Well, there's no point not enjoying something that you're meant to enjoy because you're not completing it or progressing it when you can actually just, yeah, be a little bit more playful or uh, open-minded with it. But again, very similar to you. I don't think uh, the approach has been mastered in any way, shape, or form. I think it is one of the hardest things to deal with to actually truly feel that contentment and that feeling off enough uh, in the world that we live in. I think it's important to be aware of these things. And like Bernay Brown says, the more you talk about these things openly, the more they loosen their grip on you, right? It's, yeah. it's easy when we, it's funny. I, I recall a, a moment when I was young and I got bullied and I was really afraid of these bullies. The more I tried to pretend to be brave to those around me, the more scared I actually felt on the inside. And then when I started to express some of the fear that I actually felt, I didn't feel as scared. And I, I just remember while I read this book, I remember that vividly. So I think the first step is just make sure we're aware of these things, right? And I can share one of the ways that I'm trying to approach the whole scarcity thing, especially with finance and wealth creation, et cetera, is I really work hard to not compare myself to other people. That's one of the main reasons I feel scarcity is because I'm just comparing myself to someone in my network and they've had a completely different past and a completely different story to me and a completely different set of circumstances. And I, I find myself comparing myself to them and going, oh, well, they've done all this and I haven't done any of that. So just be conscious who you're comparing yourself to and, and remember to really only compare yourself to last year or yourself to last month. So keep, keep that in perspective. Compare yourself to yourself. Don't compare yourself to other people. That, that does help me quite a bit. Yeah, I like that. Saying it is this easy, is- but actually doing it and mentally going, hey, stop comparing yourself to other people, man. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, I like that. And just as you were saying that, one of the funny things that I think is just really embedded into society as well. It's just, even when you think about business or entrepreneurship, like we never just sit there and say, oh, you know what? That yeah. was actually really successful. That's enough. Like it's always about mm. growth or what's the next thing. Yeah. Like even if you think about whether if you have an employee or you are an employee, no one ever just tells you like, you know what? That was actually just enough. Don't worry about doing anything more now. <laughs> You've just completely smashed that. And we don't need any more. Like, go celebrate it with your family. Like, that's enough. Forget about it. Like, it just doesn't happen, right? It's always about extracting more, getting more, growing more. And, yeah, it's it's interesting how embedded that is everywhere. And then I think that then flows into comparison, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. rankings, reward system, status, showcasing that. It becomes quite a crazy loop where you can't really avoid it or it's hard to avoid. If you're playing well, I don't know if you want to avoid it either. I think a little bit of not enough is good. I'll give you an example. For, for, for me, I put up a post on social media the other day saying that 
you know, I've been through 14 iterations of improving my virtual classes and my virtual sessions. And for the last four months, I haven't been through another iteration. I've just gotten a little bit lazy and went, oh, that's enough. You know, I've, I've done enough. This is good enough. I'm, I'm already leading in this space. And then I decided, you know what? Come on, Vin, get off your ass. Let's try what? Let's try another iteration. Let's see what else you can do. <laughs> and so I did. And then this morning, I was able to try out that iteration with a client of mine and it blew them away. So what I did was instead of just using my virtual set the way I have, I've decided to put in a big green screen and do virtual FX live. So now I can do VFX, you know, and like when, when, they, when they throw to me on virtual, I'm like a tiny little Vin on screen That's in my set with a shadow and everything. And then there's a mushroom that comes along, it hits me and then I get turned into a normal size Vin again and then I start the class live. <laughs> And it's crazy. I have to. I have to post this on social and show so, you later. You've got an at-home like Marvel studio yeah. making mini <laughs> Avengers movies, but in thought leadership, it's awesome. Oh, you have no <laughs> idea the, the 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 levels of play you can you can you can start to go into with this and creativity. But that that was an example of me sitting there feeling like, hey, what I'm doing isn't enough. Therefore, I kind of pushed myself to to push it to another level. And then my client this morning loved it. And, and one quote he said this morning that just made me feel so good inside was he said, Vin, I don't think we could ever do virtual without you. You know, and, and that was such a cool statement to get. But those statements don't come along. I mean, if, if I said, oh, that's enough. And then I just did for them the same thing what I did for them last year. They probably wouldn't have been as impressed. And that statement wouldn't have come along. There's a healthy dose, I think, of there's got to be a healthy dose of not enough. Because if you feel like you're enough and you're always enough and I don't know, does that does that does that kind of lead us to mediocrity as well? It makes sense because it's a really it's like, interesting it's like balance. It's like, it's like when you're parenting, you're like, honey, you're enough. Yeah. But you're also not enough as well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's because that's the truth. You you can't. Yeah, it's just, it's very yeah. difficult for me to swallow that I'm enough as I am and I'll forever be just this. Well, let's jam on this for a bit because I think this yeah. is one of life's current main issues where, mm. where a lot of people are in a conflict of, mm. call it, say, appreciation, gratitude, like self-love and forgiveness of where they're yeah. at and then balancing that with progress and taking action and then pursuing their <laughs> dreams and everything else. So I think that somewhere within this exists a balance where you can get a bit of both, where you mm. can nearly have the feeling of contentment where you don't punish yourself and you don't feel bad when an outcome doesn't play out or you're not progressing, but you're still in a good enough space that when you are creating and taking action, that you can play that game from the upside, right? Because I think where we struggle and we cause ourselves pain is when we're in the process of that progress, but the results aren't there yet. And then, or you're waiting, or it hasn't really materialized yet. And then while you're waiting for that to happen, that's where it feels like a lot of the pain exists. It's mm -hmm. in the uncertainty of it all. But you also then, paradoxically, you have to take risks to and all the good stuff generally happens when you are feeling that 
anxiety and that uncertainty <laughs> and the risk. So I'm not really sure what the answer is, right? Like if you didn't take the chance today, like I'm sure today this morning you're like, there's a very good chance that one of the world's biggest companies are going to watch me fail miserably while I try visual effects and this is going to be <laughs> the worst thing that I ever do and I'm going to just ruin the relationship with everyone. Yeah. For you, fortunately, it worked out and they gave you good feedback, but it could have gone the other way. And yeah. that would have been an equally acceptable response if they hated it, uh, which fortunately for you, they didn't. But uh, it was only exceptional, I think, because you took the chance. Otherwise, everyone would take the same chance. So, yeah, really interesting concept. Off. I, I, I laughed a couple <laughs> okay. of times while you were saying this because we just recently also reviewed the book uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And if you haven't checked that out, you make sure you jump on our previous podcast and check out that book. That book is fantastic. It's great value. And, and, and well, to me, reading this book, Bernie Brown's Daring Greatly and David Goggins Can't Hurt Me. I feel like they're, they're two great people to have in your corner. Like, because if you've only got one, then it's very easy for us to become very soft. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I think I needed Daring Greatly more than ever because I'm so critical of myself often. But I do have an attachment to that David Goggins type character. And just think of David Goggins as the one that will kick your ass. Yeah. Come on, man. You know, give me an extra 20 minutes on the treadmill. Whereas Bernays like, that's ah, okay. You've already done thirty. That's good enough. You know, that's that's. So I, I feel that we've got to have both, and this, we should really call this podcast both. both. That's yeah, what it really should both. be called. Both. Everything, because everything, and both. And it's a healthy balance between those two mindsets, and I, I think finding that balance it's going to be different for everyone. Some people need a bit more Goggins and a little less brown, whereas some people need a bit more brown, a little less Goggins, you know, and I think for me, that balances, I need a little more Bernay Brown, a little less David Goggins, because when I, when I go too crazy and too mean to myself, I shut down. I, I, I actually shut down. Whereas I have, I know people, I had friends back five, six years ago, not really friends with them anymore, but they used to fully David Goggins their own ass. And from the outside, I don't know what it's like on the inside for them, but from the outside, it mo- motivates the hell out of them and, and they, they they get things done. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the day, especially say for guys, the David Goggins stuff is stuff that we're fed a lot, you know, whether it's in pop culture, it's culturally, it's in society. Whereas the reason why I think Brene Brown's important maybe even more so for for men is because yeah. she probably speaks to the things that we all just really don't speak about or the majority of us don't. And it's, it's powerful because she even uses these examples, right? Where she goes and speaks to like the Navy SEALs and mm-hmm. like going in there, speaking to a very macho environment about shame and vulnerability. But then at the core of it, it exists everywhere, whether it's, professional athletes. And there's a chapter in the book where um, she speaks about the gender differences of how men generally feel shame and vulnerability versus how women feel shame and vulnerability. And it's so different. Like um, going just to a couple of those examples, like in the book, it's that like men feel it in the, um, in the form of feeling weak or feeling like failures or Mm. feeling soft 
right? Mm. Like you, you have to put up that armor and the guard of being strong. And there's a beautiful story in the book of somebody in the audience who goes up and speaks to her at the end of one of her sessions. And he comes up and he's like, well, what does vulnerability mean for men? Because I think the line, and you're always better at these quotes, but the line something along the way of, well, you know, a lot of people would rather see me die on the horse rather than fall off it. And I think probably a lot of guys feel like that and relate to that where, you know, there's so many stories out there where you hear of somebody who's the main maybe provider at home and they've lost their job, but they still wear a suit every day and pretend to go yeah. to work just to keep that that facade going. And then for women, on the other hand, the examples that she uses is that it's all about making it look easy and natural and perfect and all these expectations. Like I think the word used is natural, you know, like for mm. for a woman to be successful, it has to feel naturally. And then, or if it, it's either too over emotional or too cold hearted is the example used in the book. And when I was reading, I'm like, wow, they like, even though there's stereotypes and it changes a little bit, but it's pretty true. And that's pretty really bang on. It's pretty bang on. Like I think about even where I am today right now, like so much of my actions would have been driven by that where you just don't want to feel like a failure or feel soft. And it just keeps driving you essentially to put yourself in a position where you can influence outcomes or yeah, I use quotation marks, feel like you've got a level of control that you probably don't. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to just see the differences. They just got me understanding it a lot more. That was something big that the book unlocked for me. That yeah, really when she described the difference between the men and the women and, and their experiences with shame and vulnerability, it, it was so true with my parents. I, I saw that growing up in their marriage is that there were moments for my dad when when he hurt his back and he wasn't able to work. I saw the amount of shame he felt because again, he's had to be the strong one when you, when we you know took that strength away from him as a man, quite literally strength because he couldn't lift more than 10 kilos. And I just saw that destroy him for a period of his life. You know, and I went, wow, it, it's crazy how we have those expectations on ourselves. Now, do you think that women actually pressure us into have having to take on those stereotypes and be strong, don't fall off the horse, die on the horse. Do you think it's women? Do you think it's society? What do you think creates those pressures? Yeah, it, it's probably just how things have evolved over a very long period of time, just in terms of the roles and call it cultural norms, values, expectations, like – even you think about just normal relationships, right? Like how different is it when you go just from being with someone to getting married? Like the complete mm. level of expectation and the way we treat each other generally does change a little bit. Um, it's the same if you go into a workplace, you know, it's a lot different than being a student, right? So I think we organically just fit into certain behaviors, mindsets uh, based on that. But, yeah, it, maybe it's shifting a little bit now because there's more awareness around it. But yeah, when I think about even my upbringing, it's, yeah, you, you kind of just naturally have to assume that role of, you know, again, quotation marks, like it's man of the house. Like you can't really show too much weakness. You have to go and be independent. You know, like yeah. even I remember when I first started reading about like stoicism, I don't know if stoicism is the best form but if you're an entrepreneur or um yeah you were in my situation stoicism's probably the best operating system to go with 
because it's very balanced. But the downside of that is you don't really get too much emotional variety when you're living a very stoic life. Like everything's just kind of in the middle. It's like, it's not good. It's not bad. It just is what it is. You keep moving on. But you then maybe miss some of the color that's also available in the life experience. Well, that's what Bernay says. It's one of the ways that we defend ourselves from vulnerability or from having to be vulnerable and sometimes telling the truth about how we feel is that we will numb ourselves and we'll numb ourselves so that we don't feel. And when you protect yourself in that way from vulnerability by numbing yourself, you're not only numbing yourself to the bad emotions, you're numbing yourself to the good emotions. And, and when I read that, that's what made me think of stoicism. I thought, wait, isn't that what the Stoics do? Don't they kind of numb themselves so that the highs aren't too high and the lows aren't too low and they kind of live on the middle? Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because I, I've always looked at the Stoics as knowing the way to life or Buddhism or whatever it is that you know kind of preaches that middle ground. But I don't know if that's how I actually want to live. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know if I, particularly for myself, enjoy the middle always there are certain areas of my life where i'm learning to enjoy the middle Uh, one of them being investing you know not wanting to make a massive amount of money but not a little amount of money just a middle a little bit and then just yeah yeah, a little bit middle grinds over a long time investing best way to do it i believe stoic investing not financial advice not financial (laughs) advice not a financial advisor (laughs) sorry i gotta say that these days yeah however with my life i don't want I, I don't want the middle. I'm I'm happy to have the I'm happy to have the one out of tens, but I want my nine out of tens too. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I know that's a bit more of a roller coaster and some people probably don't like that, but that's what I like. What about you? <laughs> yeah. I, You're more of a middleman, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I I at the moment, say maybe the last three to five years, yeah. I much prefer Eight, <laughs> if I can get eights rather than mm. one in tens e- emotionally, like sixes to eights, I'm pretty happy with sixes to eights rather than ones and tens. Do you, okay, do you think you're able to get six to eights by not allowing yourself to, to really feel? I mean, I, I would have thought the max you would have felt is like a six well, and you're hovering dep- generally around a four and a five. It depends on how you define it. Right, okay. because you've got to think about that emotional variability when we feel extreme highs and extreme lows. Mm-hmm. I personally believe a lot of that's due to how attached we are to something. You mm-hmm. know, so if we're really attached to an experience, like to to experience a really significant low, you have to be very, very attached to it. Like it has to be attached to the core of your identity, and then it went very wrong. And that's how a lot of people experience those ones, you know, like, like say for example, whether that a lot of people are one might be losing a job that they really love, that they worked so hard at that might cause a one or losing a loved one. Like generally ones, if you experience them very strongly, they're, they're attached to some sort of loss that was very connected to you. And then the tens are on the opposite end of that scale. So I personally am of the belief is that it's a measured approach, right? You can still enjoy life. There's a there's another door where you can enjoy life to a very, very high level 
while having a healthy level of attachment to those things, you know, where, and it nearly is being the observer of what those things are so you can truly enjoy them, right? Like say, for example, if you're very, very attached to your house and all the things that you put in to be able to afford it and all the work that you did on it and how much you had to sacrifice to earn it, Mm. I think that's going to hamper your ability to enjoy it. Like, so if you are, you know, like how you were saying, like, can you really enjoy life at a six or an eight? My counter argument to that would be is, well, are you really enjoying life if you've got a lot of ones and tens? Because that's pretty volatile and unpredictable. So I don't know what the answer is to that, but my one would be is enjoy it as much as you can maximize it, but have a healthy level of, like understand your attachment to it, but also have a healthy level of detachment so you can truly enjoy those things. I feel like you've just given me a bit of a guide, right? If if life itself is chaotic, it's better to play at a five to a eight, five to a six, five to a seven. Yep. So if life it's chaotic, then you've got to practice some of that detachment so that it doesn't mm-hmm. destroy you in the moment. Yeah. But if everything in life is going well and you're comfortable, then I think in those moments you can allow yourself to, you know, seek the nines and the tens. I I don't think you can live at any particular one of those points for a long extended period of time. Again, because I think if you stay at the five and you're always there, things will become monotonous. And and, and I think human beings just need variety. We need variety. It's, it's, It's a part of giving us quality of life. So it's really about just knowing where you're currently at in life and be able to dial it up or dial it down based on where you are. It's, it's, it's really about building that sensitivity to or having that self-awareness to go, oh, look, right now, like you, we're in lockdown. We can't go anywhere. Well, if you're trying to live a 10, you're just going to suffer. You won't hit it. You're, you're not going to get there. But I don't know. I think that because even if you think about, what, well, what is a 10 or a 1 or a 5 or an 8? To me, it just feels like it's Mindset. us trying to- yeah, it's, it's perspective and it's subjectively trying to maybe make a narrative or a story about a certain experience or event, right? Like say, for example, like we could be doing this podcast and I could choose for this experience to be a one in my head while I'm doing it. Like it could, I could just make up some story in my mind, like, oh my God, here we go. I got to listen to Vin talk about vulnerability. Well, it is the one for me for the record. This is absolutely a one experience. So we're both at a one right now and we're we're trying to pretend like it's a 10, but it's it's, it's so much about perspective, right? Or we can go into it with a really optimistic, fresh mindset. This is going to be the best two hours of our day and it's going to be a peak experience and I'm going to leave it buzzed. But there's so much subjectivity there. Like objectively, you can't, there's no facts around this where we can just measure it and be like, oh, dude, that was just, yeah. how, how good's that? Like that was an eight for us. It was an eight for everyone that listened. It was, <laughs> it, was it was an eight for Brené Brown. Like this is just yeah. an eight. Like what, what a perfect eight. Like, and then yeah. we high five each other and we carry on with that day. Like, so I think that even when we talk about things like lockdown, there's a variety of the only difference that I've seen with how people have gotten through lockdown is just their perspective towards it. Like those yeah. that are really focused on what they haven't been able to do, what they've missed out on, what they've lost, which everyone can create a story 
around that. We've all been impacted in some way. Um, they probably have lived, you know, if we're using this ranking system, it's more like a three to a four and there's probably not that many highlights. Whereas others that are spoken to like, oh, wow, like every day's been amazing. Like I'm working from home. I could go for a walk. I found a new coffee shop and they do this great fruit slice. Like, so it's just, again, perspective. And mm. maybe that's what it comes down to. But it's really hard, I think, to truly sell yourself that story. You know, even when we talk about going back to the original point around it being enough, like, mm. that, that's what I struggle with. It's like, okay, well, how do you sell yourself on the story that it's enough? How do you sell yourself how? on that gratitude story? Because sometimes you do it and it just doesn't feel real. It's like, hey, I'm just telling a story. Or is it just practice well, where if you do it enough, it's like if you smile all day, do you just become happy? Maybe. I, I wrote this down in my journal, which literally I have it open to this page. <laughs> And I was, I was kind of updating one of my modules in my course on storytelling. And, and then this is kind of using stories to understand the way we shape our own identities. And what I wrote down was that, well, stories, the stories that we have in our heads about ourselves and about our lives, they, they lead us to forming beliefs about who we are. So stories lead to the beliefs, but then beliefs ultimately lead to the values that we have because based on the beliefs that we have, we'll have a certain value. And then if you take your stories and your beliefs and your values, that makes up you as a person, your identity. And if you want to have that enough, you know, that, that, that enough is a part of who you are, that you are enough, then you've got to start creating stories or writing stories or living stories is the word. You need to live out enough stories, meaning you have to start doing things that indicate that you are enough, that you have enough money, that you, you have enough. Because if you, eat, if you keep acting out like you don't have enough, then that, after you've done that, that becomes a story of you not being enough. Then it becomes the belief that I'm, you know, I'm not enough. And then now you believe your, your, your value is that I, I need to have lots of abundance. And then, yeah. So, so to me, it all starts with, going back down to the basics of how are you living out the stories that form the beliefs and values that you have? So, so, so pragmatically, what I mean by that is if I truly believe that I'm enough and I'm good enough as a parent, then it's about not, not, not living through the stories that I play in my head of, oh, you're not enough, you're terrible. I have to, so, so to me, it's about sitting down, talking to Pei Wen. And saying, hey, do you feel like I've been enough as a father? Am I doing well enough? And then if she tells me that I am enough, then wow, that's a story that I can now capture and start playing in my head. That's a piece of what evidence she, that- What if what she, she sarcastically says, <laughs> she's like, yeah, you're enough. And then you just walk off and <laughs> it's like, yeah. Then you have an extra story telling you that you're not enough. <laughs> Or a false one telling you that you are, or maybe a real well, one. You, you've got to, but but, the, but what I'm trying to get at is you you need to make sure you find evidence that what it is. I'm finding it hard to to put into words right now. <laughs> one of the things I tell my students is that you've got to document things that happen to you. So, for example, like I said to you this morning, that this client of mine that said, "Oh my God, Vin, that was amazing. I don't think we could ever do virtuals without you ever again." That was something that I documented and we, because we were doing rehearsals with recording. So I, I actually cut out that clip and put it into a bank of mine, a bank for that when I want to retell stories. 
So if I ever retold a story that, hey, this is why it's important for us to continue to push the boundaries, I can take that clip and play it during that storytelling session. And then that video will enhance the point. Now, the power behind documenting things like that is that now I believe I'm good because I've got a story to back it up. And I've got hundreds of these stories documented. And it's why I often say to my students as well is that the more positive and empowering stories you document, the more you strengthen your identity. Now, going back to what I'm, I'm trying to not very elegantly articulate, but if you want enough to be a part of your identity, you need to document and collect stories like that. You need to make stories like that happen. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll never have the bank of stories that leads to you forming the right beliefs and values. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love this. Because I think what yeah. you're saying, you know, we were just talking about, well, how do you objectively rank it or confirm nearly those areas? I think what you've hit on here is the stories are nearly the evidence for ourselves. Yes. Yes. So it's like now you've got written proof. Yes. Or you've got proof that you can communicate both to yourself and you can and if you can then communicate that proof to others, you're probably going to feel pretty good about yourself. Yes. Well, so, I mean, the first person that you need to prove it to, the first person you need the evidence for is yourself. Yeah. Right? I mean, you initially need the evidence for yourself, but then when you learn how to storytell the evidence in a way that's tasteful and and not arrogant, etc., then now all of a sudden you're able to show people who you are. But the more important one is you need to show yourself who you are. And I just feel like if you want to be enough, you have to live out enough stories, like enough stories, stories that prove to you, you are enough. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of the, the wealth component, right? One of the stories that I live out consistently to tell me that I, I've, I, you know, we're okay. We're doing well financially. It's okay because I've got that part of my brain in my mind that's always like, yeah, there's not enough. There's not enough. You've got to make more. You've got to make more. And that's because the stories that I lived through when I was young, my parents kind of embedded that story into me. When we were growing up, there was never enough money. We always had to, we always had bills that we were laid on, always had to send money to Vietnam for our family members who were, you know, worse off than us. It was just never enough. But then for me, as I got older, one of the things that I had to do to correct my money psychology was that you know, would go out for dinner with my wife and I'd say, hey, let's not even look at the prices tonight. Let's just, let's just order whatever we want. And then as we started to do that, that now was a story that's in my psychology. Hey, last, last week we went out and we just didn't even, we didn't think about it. I didn't even look at the thing. I just didn't look at the bill, just put my card there, pay for it. And the moment I started doing things like that, I was able to start to slowly fix the way that I saw myself. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at is, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening I think to it's that. Really, right? I think that's a, I think <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to that. You're just, you're just watching me untangle myself. I was like, actually, you, you you're so frustrated. <laughs> I was just trying to get out of this tangle. It was so annoying. Yeah, oh, no, I, knew, I knew what I felt, but I, I was trying to get it out. But it was just, wow. <laughs> no, that was good. That was really good. Yeah, I'm sure you. there's. I'm sure there was something in that. Well, we'll play it back and yeah. we'll, we'll extract it. <laughs> Oh, this is, this is very quickly a one out of 10 experience for everyone, but yeah. 
Yeah, no, it went from an eight to a really bad one. Just, oh. <laughs> but, then, but then you did the whole tangling thing and the, that was good. Like that was a bit of humor that then lifted that it back it, up yeah, again. That brought it back to yeah. like a 2.5. <laughs> yeah, that made me yeah. laugh. But no, I think what you've really touched on there, it's, <laughs> it really is the power of storytelling yeah. and how important that is. Just in like that's been a theme that's really popped up, I think, a lot over the last year, especially for me. Is just even when when I think about the world of business and just everything, like I'm yet to see anywhere in our current world where storytelling doesn't play a really significant role, right? Like whether that's getting a job, whether it's selling a product feature, whether it's pitching your idea to someone, whether it's putting up a Tinder profile, like every single thing that we do nowadays is about storytelling, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, like all of these things, they're just versions of people wanting to share themselves and to share their stories. I've got to tell you one, one quick story here. My, one of my cousin-in-laws, he's a pilot and he was interviewing for a job with Qantas and he was kind of debating, oh, should I storytell in this interview or not? And in the end, he decided to storytell. And he had the most beautiful story. And when he told me this, I was like, as if you didn't think like to immediately tell this story. But the story was his family are refugees from Cambodia. And the flight that flew them from Cambodia to Australia was a Qantas flight. Oh, wow. And he told this story in the job interview. And boom, immediately the emotion, the people just immediately felt what he was saying. And, you know, obviously he got the job as well. So obviously storytelling is such a powerful story to influence others, but I think what we don't realize is how powerful it is to influence ourselves. Mm. You know, if, if you want to start going through that identity shift and, and change parts of who you are, I mean, I'm learning this as I'm saying this right now, is that you need to create the right evidence to be able to back up the person you want to become. You know, yeah. live out the stories. And then those stories will form beliefs and then they'll lead to values and then they'll create the new identity that you want. For sure. And, and high level, what, what you're really providing people here with, it, it's a recipe for further self-awareness, hmm. right? Like I even remember that doing your sort of courses and stuff over the years, I think that's what it helped me unlock a little bit more as a greater understanding of these stories that make up who we are. Because then from there, you have a more vivid picture of even what your strengths are, how you got yeah. to this point, what made your makeup, like what drives you, what motivates you, and you just slowly keep coloring these things in. And, and at the beginning, funnily enough, these stories are pretty crap. Like when you first start writing them, they don't really make too much sense. There's bits missing, there's fragments that are gone, but as you keep refining them, you end up maybe finding like five, six, ten stories that – probably a pretty core part of who you are. And they're usually like, I remember you saying this one thing that was really powerful is that there's a difference between sort of just summarizing a chapter of your life versus actually finding key moments. And mm. that's a really difficult part is actually digging into those deeper and key moments. And when you get those really nice and vivid, uh, it becomes quite powerful. Well, I mean, think about the, the little stories that make up who you are and the stories that make up who I am. We, we tend to be replaying certain stories in our heads all the time without even being conscious of it. I'll give you a couple of examples of mine. The classic one for me that I tell in my keynotes is the one I also replay in my head all the time is that I quit university to pursue becoming a magician. Yep. Another one for me that, that you keep telling me is that I'm a tinkerer, that I keep improving the things that I do and I always 
find another way to make things more meaningful, et cetera. And because you keep telling me those stories, I'm also telling myself those stories. So then therefore it leads to certain actions that I take all the time, just trying to improve things all the time. And I just feel like in all of our heads, we have these, like you said, five, six, maybe 10, we've got a handful of stories that we're telling ourselves all the time. And somewhere, because you're giving me this great awareness now, brother, it's just somewhere in my head, I've got a story still that's telling me, hey man, like you're fat, right? And, and, and somewhere in my head is that story that's coming from a piece of evidence that I'm re, kind, of, kind of retelling all the time. And I have to tell you that by, by kind of, and, and this is the thing, I, I haven't lost that much weight. However, the fact that I've been getting on the bike consistently, that story starts to fade away as I replace it with stronger stories. And, and I have been doing the David Goggins thing in terms of I used to only ride for 30 minutes. Now I do 50 minutes and far out, man, unreal. I couldn't believe I could do 50 minutes. So it, it, it's one of those things where to, to make it relate to this book again, I used to have the story where I tell myself that, oh, I, I never share any of my stories. I never share anything vulnerable. And back then when I did the classes with you, Ali, you did the first stage class I ever ran. I never told stories that were emotional by nature. They were just funny stories. But then as I went through my class, I wanted to be more vulnerable. So then I told one vulnerable stories once and I actually cried on stage. And then I had a new story about myself that, Novin, you are someone who's vulnerable. You are someone who's willing to open up to the class and to share more of yourself. And that got a great reaction from my class. Then that became a part of me. So it's if you want to be more vulnerable, it has to become a part of the way you live so that it can become a story that you can recall as a piece of evidence to say that, yes, this is actually who I am. Yeah, for sure. And even as you were saying that, I think it's really important to know that like, when we speak about the concept of vulnerability, a lot of that is around just sharing truer parts of who we are. And that can happen in a variety of different forms because I used to always just think that our vulnerability is just about being emotionally vulnerable, you know, telling sad stories about yourself and crying about it. You know, like that's a very stereotypical way of thinking about vulnerability. But then I also think that, and it's another really good point that this book hits on, that you can be vulnerability through your art forms, through the way that you practice things, through the way that you, like like one of the big ones that stood out for me is actually recognizing that entrepreneurship is actually a form of vulnerability. And I never really looked at it like that. But when you break it down, there's so many components of that that lead you to a deeper part within yourself, whether it's testing an idea and putting yourself out there, you know, vulnerable to failure, vulnerable to judgment from your family and friends, um, vulnerable knowing that you might have to make changes that impact people that you really care about, vulnerable around the uncertainty of whether your business ideas not relevant anymore or it might fail or, you know, all these things creep in. And I think that's why some people are really attracted to that. And even nowadays, those stories become a little bit more inspiring because they've got components of that hero's journey of taking a chance on something that didn't really exist and then trying to make it uh, a reality. But maybe that's also a takeaway from this is if that you're not feeling like maybe if you're feeling anxiety or you're feeling shame, the antidote to that might even just be looking for a variety of different forms of vulnerability where you can express yourself a little bit more. And 
They could I'm be so doing a stand-up comedy up. class, you know, mm. bungee jumping, like anything that maybe causes some fear or uncertainty to you. I'm really glad you yeah. brought that up because for while I was reading the book, I remember the first time I read it years ago, I was really unclear on what vulnerability was. And, and every time Bernie Brown said vulnerability, I went, oh, yeah, sad stories, crying on stage. Uh, that, that's just what I thought. And, and I remember this time now going through the book, I, I captured a whole bunch of things like you mentioned. I might just ring off a few more for people yeah. as well, just to give people a stronger sense sure. of vulnerability. You know, another one is asking for forgiveness, mm. you know, standing up for yourself while you're being criticized. When you have to fire people, laying off employees, like Ali said, the entrepreneurship, presenting an idea, product or service to the world, admitting that you're afraid to people, telling people that you're actually scared, you know, exercising in public when you're out of shape. And you've got waiting for a biopsy to come back or a result, a medical result, getting pregnant after three miscarriages, trying again, that requires vulnerability, mm. trying something new, falling in love, getting fired, being the first to say, I love you. First date after divorce, initiating sex with your partner. You know, it, it's just all these moments where you feel that uneasy feeling in your stomach and you feel like you've put yourself out there and you potentially can get hurt. And, and I think the, the ultimate way of being vulnerable that Bernay Brown mentioned was falling in love. Because when you really, really love someone, you're essentially giving them access to you without no armor. And if they, they, they can just stab you and you're dead, right? So, so that's the most vulnerable form of vulnerability is love. And, and it wasn't until I read through this list that I went, oh, yeah, I got it. Whereas before I was talking about vulnerability as if I knew what it meant, but I was like, oh, yeah, vulnerability, sad stuff. You yeah. know, and, 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 and it doesn't just have to be sad stuff because vulnerability is neutral. It's not, it's not bad or it's not good. It's this neutral thing. Because saying I love you first, that's not sad. That's only sad if the other person doesn't tell you they don't love you, you know. It could be great. So again, yeah. it's, it's, I, whereas I used to look at vulnerability as something that, I know it was a little bit negative, but now I look at it as, wow, it's, it's actually neutral. And yeah. when you allow yourself to be more vulnerable, you feel more, you, you feel your way through life as opposed to just being numb through life. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it's, so when we start then trying to put a bit of a practical spin on this, mm-hmm. like what's, what are some of the ways that you think you, now practice this a little bit more. I ask for help. Mm. I never used to ask for help. And this was one of the things that my friends around me, they, they didn't understand why. It was strange because they, I, I, I became that hero in my friendship group where Anytime something goes wrong, my friends, my family, they come running to me. And then our relationship got to a point where it plateaued, where the relationship just didn't get any deeper. And I could tell the relationship wasn't getting any deeper. And I could tell that gradually my friends felt bad coming to me because I never came to them. And then their assumption was, oh, Vin doesn't have any problems. Like he's just, he's he's living his best life always hundred percent. And then this weird thing happened where I expected them to help me, but I never voiced it. So then they wouldn't help me. And then I felt resentment, but I never voiced any of that again 
because of this assumption now that Vin should always be okay. And then that resentment grew and then there was this massive wall and then it was even harder to ask them for help. So that happened between some of my friendships until I learned how to ask for help. And Ali, I have to say that you were one of the first people that you, I never asked for help. I needed it, never asked for it, but you helped me. And you were one of the people that taught me how to ask for help without you probably even knowing. It, well, because it felt so good. It felt so good to have your help. You know, and not only did it feel so good to have your help, but I started seeing so much traction and progress. I mean, there was a period where you were helping me with my workshop business when I was over in the US and we were able to grow it and grow it and grow it. And, and it's funny, I don't mean in, in any disrespectful way, but I, I never really fully asked you for help. You just started helping me. <laughs> And it's taught me how to ask for help now, not only from you, but from Pei Wen, my wife, from my cousin, from people I love, my friends, from my parents. Whereas before this, I tried to do everything myself. And, and to me, vulnerability is asking for help. Yeah, for sure. Admitting and that you can't do it alone. Yeah. And in, in the spirit of the love fest, like I'll return that the other way. Whereas I think you like the reason why I got into maybe that help mindset, it wasn't even conscious. I think it was more just because you opened my eyes to the power of probably openness and then communicating those things. Because I think when, I think we all want to try to help people that we care about, but with yours, it felt like, Oh wow, you can do it a different way. Like if you look at say my personality type or that, you know, I know you do the color code tests in your workshops and that red personality type. It's very action orientated. It's, you know, very pragmatic. It's black and white a lot of the times. Naturally, it goes down that point. But what you really helped color in, it's like, oh, wow. Well, if you combine action or strategy or moves with, you know, call it compassion and kindness and openness, that's where you get true power. Um, within that. And I think, you know, open, and I think that's what you've done for a lot of people is that you open up the doors of openness and tapping into that, call it connected side a little bit more. And especially for A types or professionals or people that are really overly ambitious out there, I think it's really important to counterbalance that. Otherwise, you're just sprinting to an unknown destination and it maybe doesn't mean that much. So, you know, going back the other way as well, I think that there was a really, with us, it was always a very organic exchange of value. You know, we always talk about that mm. in relationships where the uniqueness and the differences, um, that's what results, I think, in a lot of the really cool relationships that we have in our lives where you've got two people that are pretty aligned, they want to head into a certain direction. But, yeah, you need different approaches, um, which is really powerful. Well, I mean, I... I can say to you as well that I think for someone that's kind of your character type as well, to admit that you needed more of something, that's also a form of vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the times I think to showcase some of your limitations, that's very difficult for someone who's, you know, again, the, the, the system we use. And, and there's so many of them out there. There's the My Briggs. There's so many of them, right? And this is just yeah. – Red is just the, the one that is really drawn to power, drawn to – and, it's, and, it's, and again, it's not personal. It's not that they're addicted to power. It's just they want to get from point A to point B. That's their mission, yeah. right? Yeah. We, but for someone like that to admit that this is something that I need to work on, this is something I need more of, that's, that's, 
that's a vulnerable thing to do, man. But what about for you? What about for you? Yeah. Where has vulnerability come up for you and how have you been able to apply? I mean, I've shared one. Do you have any? Yeah, for sure. Like, Do you I have think... any vulnerabilities? <laughs> no, no. I was just making no. up stories there just for the no. purposes of this podcast. Like, no, exactly. if, if you've just got it fully figured out, like, come on, seriously. But no, Ali was like, born I... a man. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the big one that stood out for me in this book when I just looked at, say, my history was really around probably fitting in. Like a lot of the environments that I was in, even from a young age, was, you know, the narrative was, oh, you don't belong here. You're not really meant to be here. Like I was always quite a minority or very different in the groups that I was in, whether it was growing up in a small country town in, you know, in the hills in Melbourne to, you know, being the only kid of colour probably in, in that whole community and trying to navigate that or, you know, it was being the shortest kid in class. It was coming from a different family upbringing. So for me, that was where probably a lot of my vulnerability or actually blockages to vulnerability stem from. You know, it was, okay, we'll go into these uncertain environments and then see if you can find your position within it, find acceptance, and then ultimately at the end of it, try to win it. You know, turn it into a game and see if you can even elevate yourself from the bottom of that pack up to the top. So that's something that when I was reading this book just made me get a little bit more clarity on that. That I'm like, oh wow, I've never really actually looked at it hmm. like that. Where it was around the underdog story or trying to, yeah, go into hostile environments essentially and try to manage them. So what I think that then also led to is what we were talking about around stoicism being the toolkit to then deal with that. Because when you go into those environments, it's very volatile. And I think what I then really did was I used numbing as a very good strategy for a quite a long time there where whether it was through just over focusing on a project or digging in too much whether it was you know back in the day drinking a little bit too much like it was it was probably those toolkits where I'd release the inhibitions um but I think a lot of mine manifested in the form of trying to build and control worlds where it felt you know nearly like what we were talking about before in a world where there is so much uncertainty and change and chaos. I think my history has always been is trying to curate that environment that suits me. And previously that would probably come at a pretty significant cost for some of the others that were involved in that world if they weren't fully in, aligned with it or on the same page. And I think that's also very aligned with the red type of personality type. You know, we we probably like creating environments, um, surrounding ourselves with people, with things that really fit with who we are at that period in time. And if it starts getting a little bit shitty or uncertain, we'll either change it pretty significantly um, or we'll bail. So, you know, that's why I think freedom's a very big inherent value. But, yeah, it's gotten better. But there was times where, yeah, like just – like I would get to the point where I, if this thing isn't working, I want I want to go to Mexico for two months. You know, like that was my move. That's that's my go-to move rather than dealing with whatever it was uh, at that time. So I think it's just working on that. And that's where when I look back on lockdown, that's been one of the coolest things about it. I'm like, well, I've come a long way in the fact that this is this goes against a lot of what I thought previously were my core values. But there is actually a way to then enjoy it and then add a few other strings to your bow which is pretty cool. Hmm. 
I mean, while while you were sharing that, it made me think of a moment where I used the vulnerability. It helped me and it empowered the person that I was with. So I, I, I had a really tough conversation with, you know, with Pei Wen. We were going through something that, that was really, really tough. And, and I remember my go-to, you know, the, the male in society is always, <laughs> I've got the solution. We've got this. This is a one, two, three, four, five, six step. Let's just yeah. follow this. And over the next two weeks, we'll be fine. And then I, I remember this, this one time we had the conversation. I said, you know what? I, I want to show her that I, I actually feel hurt too. You know, it's not, it's not just her. I actually feel the pain as well. And I remember us both sitting there and, and you know, we, we just really felt really sad. And, and when I was vulnerable enough to not abide by the stereotypical what the man should be doing in the moment, and in a sense, I just, I sat in the dark together with her. What was really inspiring was that she then became the light that pulled us out of the dark. You know, metaphorically, right? Because that's what I would always do. I, I'm always that person for people. I, I tend to be the person that holds a torch and go, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. That way, let's head that way. Whereas this time, it was funny because when I was vulnerable enough as a man in my relationship to be more vulnerable, it empowered my partner, my wife to, to stand up and be the light that pulled us out of the darkness. And, and that was an amazing experience for me. It was amazing for her. And it just felt great. And, and that was a key moment where I, I really identified and went, man, I don't always have to be the strong one. I don't always have to be the one that knows the way out. I, I don't always have to be that person. And just when that weight lifted off my shoulders, it just felt like you could breathe more easily. You know, it, it didn't feel like I'm the only defender of this family. It's only me. And, and it just felt like now for once it's, it's that we're a team, you know, it's not just, yeah. just me. It's not just her. It's, Hey, we're a team. And, and just allowing myself to be vulnerable in that sense, that has been amazing too, because yeah. now I've done that in many other ways. You know, one of the examples I think we already mentioned, but it's, it's like when I started to do the keto diet with my wife, instead of doing it myself, I asked her to join me and do it with me because I knew that if I did it myself, I wouldn't be able to, get through it yeah yeah so, so i'd say the, the the key area that vulnerability has helped me is just learning how to ask for help and not trying to do everything myself yeah for sure and i think just as you were sharing that as well like one of the real big tips in the book is knowing like also knowing how and when to sh be vulnerable you know, like yeah. uh, I think Brene Brown calls it like be vulnerable with boundaries. Like there's going to be certain yeah. environments where it can work, but you need to also judge the room and the people that you're with. Like if you've just started a new job, you probably don't want mm -hmm. to go into the first meeting with like your darkest, deepest secrets and just <laughs> share that there. And I think, I think um, a really cool oh, <laughs> strategy that she, she mentions in the book is the marble jar strategy, you know, like mm -hmm. because – like the big question is, well, at what point do you become vulnerable, right? But it's nearly like you have to trade marbles and fill in that jar. Like if I say if you and me have five, ten interactions where we're building that trust, there's enough marbles in there to be like, all right, well, this is somebody that I want to then share marble number 11, number 12 with. But if you're in a relationship where every time you put something out there, the marble just gets thrown away out the door, um, you probably then want to 
maybe protect yourself a little bit and not share in that environment. But well, yeah, I think let's quickly I, clarify that the, the marble jar, just to, just to clarify it for the listeners as well, is that she says, just imagine you have a jar, you're interacting with someone when they do something where they've earned your trust, you can put an extra marble in when they do something that betrays your trust, you take a marble out. So yeah. it's just the way that she uses to, to explain this. It's cool. Well, um, yeah, but I think even in a, as a takeaway and as a practice, it's like just maybe try a little bit of vulnerability yeah. and like that well, could be a little challenge after this episode. Like do do one vulnerable action or move with someone. One vulnerable action, but do it, do it with people who you've got at least yeah. 10 marbles in the jar with, right? Yeah. Don't do it with someone who there are negative six marbles in, in the jar with. <laughs> Yeah. And and I think a classic example of this, like you mentioned, is people oversharing in a job interview. Mm. You know, imagine you go into a job interview, what are your strengths? And then you just immediately say, oh, you know, you know we, we don't, you know, you, you asking me that question just because you want to, you know, and like you can't, you actually have to share some of your strengths. You can't, you can't be too humble to the point where you're yeah. just saying, I don't have any strengths. You know, I, I, I really feel like I'm, I'm putting myself out there to do this job interview. And, and, and I really hope you'll give me the job because I'm really desperate Probably not going to get the job. <laughs> yeah, need the cash. Probably not going to get the um, job. Yeah. So that's powerful. Um, yeah. I, I love that you challenge people with that challenge as well, is that, you know, do something vulnerable after this. And, and, and one of the reasons why I think you should is because vulnerability builds deeper connections. Yeah. So I, I, I've looked a lot into the psychology behind how to run a workshop, how to build deep and engaging connections with your students, et cetera. And one of the ingredients is vulnerability. You know, when, when you're willing to be vulnerable with an audience that you've primed, that you've built trust with, that you've earned their trust, they've earned your trust, et cetera. Then when you're vulnerable, when there's enough jars, uh, marbles in the jar, then it deepens a relationship significantly. Now, now, now your class or now the person that you're being vulnerable with, now they care deeply about you. And there's a right way to do that and there's a wrong way to do that. You know, and, and Bernie Brown talks about that too in that she says, some people are vulnerable strategically, but they do it in the wrong way. So they'll meet somebody for the first time and because they want to get that deep connection with that person and build a deep, powerful connection, they will immediately say something that's really, really vulnerable and really deep. And, and sometimes it could be a little bit morbid. And then the other people are like, oh God, oh, oh, get away from me. Now, they wouldn't have given them that reaction if they built the relationship over time, built the trust, collected marbles, then do that. So, so just you know, don't hear that, oh, vulnerability is a great way to build deeper connections and then immediately try to throw out vulnerability to all these different people around that, that, that aren't very close to you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really good piece of advice. So yeah. going back to that, given that this is probably more your area of expertise, if you're someone who needs to build rapport quickly, how are you doing it? I, I can't draw this, so I'm going to try to describe it. Imagine a sine wave, if those of you who know what a sine wave is. A sine wave is just kind of, it's a wave that goes up and down, up and down, up and down. There's peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs. And when you meet somebody, I don't know how I'm going to explain this without a graph. I need to draw this. But, but, but essentially when I meet someone, let's say that it's neutral, okay? Yep. So when I meet them, it's neutral. I have stories 
that I share that are humorous that I can deliver in probably about 30 seconds. And once I share that story and they laugh, it goes from a neutral position to a positive position. So say you've got a graph and there's, you know, there's the, you know, the Y axis and the X axis. So you're neutral. And then when you make them laugh, it brings them up to a plus 10. So they feel good. They're like, Oh, this is, I I like this person. This is fun. Endorphins are going through their head, dopamine, all the good stuff. And then after I take them to a good place, I'll just check to see that, is there a strong enough connection after that story? Generally not. So then they will share a story. We'll talk. I've got questions I ask that, you know, hopefully we'll draw stories from them. And then back and forth within say about five to 10 minutes, we've shared two or three stories. And the moment we've shared two or three stories, we've kind of gone through this little wave. So, you know, it's gone from zero up to a 10, back down to four. And then their story kind of makes me laugh again, goes up to a 10, go down to a four. And then we've got rapport now. So to me, when you've got that little nice wave, you've got rapport, but still it doesn't mean you have permission to take them to uncomfortable places. So then once I check that there's enough rapport and there's enough waves in the graph, then after that, I will trial a story that has a little bit of vulnerability. So, you know, not a story talking about my grandmother passing and then crying about it with them, but I'll share with them a vulnerable story of how potentially, you know, I failed on one of my projects recently and wasn't able to deliver. And then I take them from say a four down to a negative five. But then after that, I use humor again and humorous energy to bring them back from a negative five back up to zero again. I think, again, I'm being very complex with the way I explain it because it's very difficult to explain without a graph. However, the reason why you need to use storytelling and humor is because you can't take people to a really deep story and vulnerable story and then just keep them there. People hate it. They get exhausted. And, and, and just think about one of your friends potentially that you have. I have one of these people and it's okay. We, we all tend to. And when you're with them, it just always feels really heavy. It's just, it's just things are always are just down. Things are just always sad and there's always problems, always things to complain about. And after a while, when this person continues to be like that, a lot of people around their network and around their circle don't want to hang out with them anymore. Mm. And then that's why I think it's so important to understand the importance of humorous energy and bringing vibrance to conversations because first you have to bring the vibrance, bring the story, good stories and funny stories and humorous stories. And then once you've got that rapport, then you can take them deeper. Then you can take them deeper. But before you get that permission, very risky, very risky. So interesting. I love that. That's such yeah. a cool insight into nearly the – it's like hacking the process of building instant rapport. It's very cool. Do, do you think the other side though, like if you just stay at humor, yeah, so no one you, rather than going – oh, really? So you think it's the other way? Yeah. Well, yeah, it, okay. it's true. I mean, I mean, think about this for a moment, right? We all have someone like this in our network as well. And, and I think we do this quite well on the podcast, if I can say so myself, in that we have <laughs> moments where we go to deep conversations <laughs> about – why do we exist? What's the purpose of life? But then we'll, we'll, we'll have fart jokes, yeah. you know, 15 minutes later. And, and, and to me, that, that's a nice kind of frame because, we, you know, we can't just keep talking about the meaning of life for two damn hours. It's too exhausting. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, but if we were just joking the whole time, it's kind of like that person in your network who you can't ever have a serious conversation with. You're like, hey, man, seriously, how did you feel after getting fired? 
You know who fired? Who else got fired? I fired that person's wife. You know, and it's like that dude, it doesn't even make sense. Sorry, I tried to think of a joke, but I couldn't think of anything. I really yeah, like I that more face. though. That's better. That's better than hearing the story about why he got fired. <laughs> no, but um, but imagine they keep doing that. They keep doing that nonstop. You know, it, it's it's how did you? Yeah. Hey, how did you feel after this? And they're like, I don't know. How did you feel after this? And then they how did you? How did you feel after your mum? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lee, so's, so's your face, mate. So's your face. Yeah, so's your, um, yeah. Oh, it's so Classic good. children. So good. Schoolyard classic, banter. But it's. Children's humor. But, it, but, it, but it's the case. It's that if, <laughs> if that person can never be serious, they're kind mm. of exhausting to be around too. And after a while, you yeah. just stop hanging out with that person. So both ends of the extreme is negative mm. <laughs> you know it's if you're always cool. just the clown then you're just the class clown you're nelson you're nelson mm. from the simpsons who wants to have a conversation with nelson from the simpsons who wants to sit with nelson for uh, you know five hours and have a dinner conversation with him i don't know yeah. i wouldn't yeah it, it's really interesting as you were saying that and i think that there's also a variety of different ways that people build rapport mm-hmm. you know like, like when i was listening to you speaking then i'm like oh well how do i do it because it's like okay if i'm in a if i'm at an event or a conference or with our maybe a prospective team member that we're trying to get on board like i was thinking about what my approach is and mine's probably a little bit different in that sense like i don't think i do as much of the storytelling side but what i personally try to really um unlock as quickly as i can is what's what's this person about? Mm. You know, so I'm I'm usually going in because to me I think relationships are largely about exchange of value. I think we've spoken about this, you know, a little bit. But I think that all the best relationships in our life, they generally have a really nice exchange of value. You know, there, there's there's a crossover of benefits that both parties provide each other. And generally when that's healthy, and, you know, you've got your formula of the up and down with the stories and the emotional sort of range. For me, it's more around, it's nearly like a balance, you know, it's checks and balances of how's this value being exchanged between two people. And that value can come in a variety of different forms. It might be material, it might be humor, it might be care, it might be help, it might be support, it might just be listening, whatever it is. But we all know it. We know the feeling when we're involved in a good relationship. You know, it doesn't feel draining. It's not an energy sapper. It's something that you look forward to when that person's name pops up on your phone. You want to, you're excited to have a chat to them. It, we just know it, right? Like, and if we're lucky in a lifetime, you maybe get five to 10 people like that, that you want to have that relationship with over a 10 year period, potentially, right? So for me, that happens when I can get a really good understanding of the core essence of who that person is. And then if there's a way that I can add value to them after understanding that, generally I find that's where my strongest relationships happen. Now that could be, you know, that's why I think I personally, I like working with a lot of people that I'm actually pretty close to because I've a, I don't really care too much about their skills and what material value they can provide to the entity. Like that's obviously important. But for me, it's more around alignment and how can that person then thrive and then potentially hit their their potential, you know, and achieve their goals within that environment that I've created, you know, or that I'm trying to curate. 
To me, that's where a lot of the magic happens. Um, and that probably exists with a lot of those relationships. So that could be another little strategy is mm. how quickly can you find out, well, where is this person right now? What is it they want? What are some of their fears? Where's the gap in what they're trying to achieve? And can you play any role with that? Because I think if you can impact that somewhat, it's a pretty cool rapport building toolkit. Um, and it's well, I mean, even, sorry, right? Yeah, well, what I was going to just quickly say was that storytelling and connecting is how you begin the conversation mm. to discover those things about them. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a part of the process yeah, that yeah. you described, you know, That's and true. I love that you gave that so much clarity because it's true. It's not just about sitting there telling stories to each other back and forth, but it's also like what you said is that after you share a few stories, they share a few stories. Now you've got a stronger sense of who they are, where they're at and what they need. And in that point is when you can learn if, oh, can I add value to this person? And, and value comes, like you said, in many forms. Mm. However, I, I really believe that the, the skill of being able to storytell, even, even at the slightest level, is so important because that's the quickest way to show people who you are. Mm. And, and you also have to be good at asking questions, right? So I think a, a great question to ask people is, hey, is there anything that I can help you with? And you ask me that all the time. So to me, I think if you, if you want to be of someone that adds value to others, that's just a great question to ask. I, I don't think it's about doing something strategic or beating around the bush or mm. trying to learn about what they yeah. need in a sneaky way. No, just ask them, hey, is, yeah, what do you is want? there anything that I can help you with? <laughs> what do you need help with? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that we don't do enough of, you know, and- well, we, I don't ask for help and a lot of people don't ask what I need help with. Yeah. So it, it's from both angles. We, we, all, we all are trying to be that. Well, many of us are trying to be that lone wolf, you know, that, that, that yeah. person that can do it all. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other side is that a lot of people are also just too focused on what it is they need, right? So if you're looking yes. at the power of that relationship, it's okay. Well, like we probably get it a lot, right? Where you get, you get that random reach out. Hey, I'm good yeah. at this and I want this. Mm -hmm. Can you give it to me? And it's like they're, they're usually the ones that get deleted straight away, but oh, surprising how that's still, it's surprising still how common an approach that is. Whereas yeah. the best ones, you know, to, to build a relationship, it's like, hey, I've got this skill. It looks like you need this help. I'm going to go out and help you out. And if you see value in that, I'd love to do something together. And how many times have we seen that work? Well, well, I mean, the very example of me pushing myself with my studio was simply because my client shared with me, he, he basically said to me, oh, Vin, this virtual world is so difficult. It's so hard to hold everyone's attention over an hour session. And we want to run, you know, four of them. And then that's what made me think. That's what made me go, huh, how can I actually add more value? Okay, the problem is engagement. That's why I came up with all the VFX stuff. So again, it's, it's really, you're right. We, a lot of people don't know how to ask for help. And I think as we learn how to do that, we're going to be able to, to tap into all the brilliance around us. Yeah, yeah that's cool. That's well, cool. We, we spoke about vulnerability. The other big word here is shame, mm. the one that kind of comes up over and over again in the book. So if we had to yep. define shame, I mean, I was, I was really trying to define it and, and look for that part of the book where she defined it. And, and I, I can't seem to find it again. But, but again, from, from what I remember from the book is- This is what I had. I had okay, shame okay. as being a prisoner 
of pleasing, perfecting, and performing. See, I, I, I thought of shame. I thought of shame as just being a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation. Mm. You know what? I, I, for example, I, I'm trying to think of a moment where I felt shame. Can you think of a moment where you felt shame? I think it's a hard one. For, yeah, for me, like when I think of shame, it's nearly that feeling of embarrassment where you've gone and done something, you've then felt exposed, and then you feel inadequate. Right? Yeah. So, and you kind of, or it's usually attached to some type of judgment that you weren't really expecting. Mm. And then, to me, it's it's very much like the word deficiency. Ah. Yeah, deficiency yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. keeps really like uh, popping up. I've got one. I remember this mm. one moment where uh, this was three, four years back, and I remember yeah. in the back of. Sorry, I turned my head away from the mic, but on the back <laughs> of my head, I yeah. lost like a patch of hair, <laughs> and that was the first time. I've ever experienced I laugh. that. I, I laughed at you just said Because <laughs> you've lost all of it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, your head just looks like shame. But, I've um, got a full head of hair. I just choose this look, all right? This, yeah, is, yeah, no. this is my choice. <laughs> I, I kind of wondered because it does look quite full when I see all the yeah. little dots on your head. But I, I lost this patch of hair behind my head. And it was just from, oh, just going through so much stress in my life. Mm. But I immediately felt inadequate. I felt like I... You know, because I attach so much value to having a head full of hair. And I felt shame, dude. I felt humiliated. Mm. You know, I, I felt scared to go out. And it was just, you know, it was just this immense feeling of humiliation. Mm. And I just remember that. It was such a, such a bizarre, yeah. it was a terrible feeling. I felt so self-conscious, felt so humiliated, felt so embarrassed. That's an example for me when I just really felt that. Shame and and again, it's so interesting, right? Because it's like, is it really that bad, dude? You know, you know, it wasn't really that bad, Mm. but I just in my head, it just felt awful. Do do you have any moments where you felt it? Oh, for sure. Like, kind of think um, of some because just like the vulnerability examples, when you can throw mm, in examples of what shame is, it helps us get a firmer grip of this thing, shame. Well, while I think of some here's, examples, here's, here's, the, here's the definition. So okay. shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Ooh. So okay. What, that in the book, that's in italics, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good find. Well yeah. done. And then here are some categories of shame that we can explore. So it's appearance and body image, money and work, motherhood, fatherhood, family, parenting, mental ah. and physical health. Addiction, sex, aging, religion, surviving trauma, being stereotyped or labeled. So, yeah, I think um, most of us have probably had each of those twelve categories ticked at some point. Like, like Dude, I'll, I remember I'll, I'll share one, one now. Yeah, you yeah, share, share one. one. So yeah. I remember being younger, like wanting to be a cricketer and wanting to play cricket right and one of the things sort of back in even the the late 90s is and this is just brought up the other day but like i would play cricket and you'd get sledging 
right? So everyone what's else's that? sledging would be what's like, so sledging? that's where, so in cricket, it's like just giving people crap. So while the batter's batting, oh. like if you're the fielding team, because as a bat's, like as a batter, you're only one person there facing the ball and then there's 11 other fielders from the opposing team there. So one of the tactics that you use to try to get the batsman out or the batter out is you sit there and you heckle them. You know, usually with little jokes and stuff. And generally, like when when you're a kid, they're not too bad, right? But I was the only person probably of color in that team. But I guarantee the the level of sledging that I was receiving wasn't the wow. normal level of sledging that anyone else was like. Like I still remember yeah. it. It'd be like there'd be like back then, like The Simpsons was big, so lots of like Apu jokes and yeah. like yeah, go back to the Cookie Mart and like yeah. all of that. But like I remember that now, like. And back then you, you kind of, you just rub it, you know, it's just like, oh, we're off a duck's back or whatever. But then you think back to it now, like that was just one of those things that I think even as a kid, you then oh. experience a little bit where it's like, oh, well, yeah, like the other kids aren't probably dealing with a similar type of shaming. And cricket's a really interesting one like that, just with sledging being a part of the culture of the sport. Like it would... It would be the same if, like, there was an overweight kid. Like, straight away, they'd start getting jokes. And it's like you think about all of these little bits and pieces. Yeah, it just sort of maybe starts in the playground a little bit um, mm-hmm. at a very young age. But, yeah, that's one that I can think of. No, I, and I, I love that you gave the examples because when you, you shared parenting, I was like, damn, I've got a shame story with this one as well. I remember one day just being so overwhelmed with work and then come in after a long day and then Xander's being super naughty. And there was this one moment where I just, I, like, I, I kind of lost it and I yelled at him and I, I slapped him on the hand. And the moment I slapped him on the hand, he looked at me and tears started to form. And in that moment, I knew I overreacted because what he did wasn't that bad, but it was what was going through my head that was, really, and then I just felt so bad about myself, man. Like, I just remember the the depth of the feeling of this, like this awful feeling came over me, and I've I've never felt that awful as a parent before. Yeah, and it just felt so it was crippling, man. Holy yeah. cow! And 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 man, I was so afraid to even tell Pei Wen about it. I was so afraid, and but the moment I did, then oh man, it was weight off my shoulders again. But but up until I told her, I just oh, it's like it's like I felt like I murdered someone. You know, it just felt so awful. So it, it, whether it's being sledged at, never heard yeah. that saying before, or whether it's, you know, raging You've never played enough kids. sports, that's why. Oh, really? <laughs> so that's the thing in all sports, sledging. A lot of sports, yeah. Banter, uh, yeah well, sledging, whatever you want to call it. It explains why you always sledge me on these Yeah, I sledge you all the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I sledge you. Like I always get sledged. Uh-uh. <laughs> probably, pretty, probably a bit softer on you as well than I, I would be more naturally if you were more – Accustomed to sledging, but (laughs) (laughs) I get sledged by Pewen all the time. (laughs) Especially when I think when you me and when you me and Craig are together, your videographer, that's when the the banter really kicks off. It's it's man, it's it's just a sledging session. But But I yeah, I think the 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 other one that I felt as well, just I wanted to quickly mention because I think it rounds out people's understanding of it. Is for me, it was I, I failed year twelve. You know, when I failed year 12, I mean, I talk about it now and I'm in a way kind of like, oh, thank goodness I didn't, you know, ace it or anything because it might have led me down a different path. But at the time when I failed and I got it and I got my results in my hand and I got like 46 out of 100, I, I, I didn't pass. Yeah. 
I felt so much shame, man. Damn. I felt like, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. It was awful. Wow. Yeah, so so okay. School, school is amazing at practicing shame. Oh, it's like a shame it's nearly, Yeah. That's yeah. like the real education is like you can, you can hit nearly – unless you – yeah. You could probably hit most of the categories of shame just in five years of schooling. <laughs> it, it's, it's phenomenal though like because it's such a deficiency-based model, right? Like – like even I remember it in year 10 just because of the way that I approached school. It was always like, oh, well, school isn't for you. You should quit. You're not a good student. You're you're never going to hit your potential. You're probably going to end up down this path because of how you're going about it. And it's like all these judgments that are all based around just trying to reinforce inadequacy. So it's funny when we when we think about shame. And, you know, we've spoken about even perfectionism a fair bit. Like – I think school and just this concept of shame, like to me, I just think I blocked it out. Mm. You know, like I would just either try to wear it as a badge of honor growing up or whether this is the right or wrong move, I just tried to avoid it as, as much as possible or prove it wrong. You know, because I think that it's just one of those things that if it takes a hold of you, it's a really hard one to – to overcome, you know, like we've spoken, well, we've spoken about this before around like fears as well. Like it, it feels like shame's one of those ones where can you then turn it into fuel, you know, like rather than it depleting you. And we we kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast where mm. we said that shame is one of those things where it's similar to fear in that when you when you face it, and Brene Brown specifically says that. <laughs> When you become really conscious of what you feel ashamed of, so being conscious and being aware of what it is that you feel ashamed of is one way to combat it. And the second way to combat shame is to actually voice it, is to actually say, oh, man, I, I, I didn't pass year 12. I feel stupid. Hmm. Just by saying these things and by acknowledging them, they lose power. They lose their grip on you. That's why when you were saying you try to ignore these things, I, I wonder if that's actually a dangerous strategy, right? Because the more we try to ignore it, yeah. sometimes the more it's actually holding on to you, you're just turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. Well, maybe ignoring it. Yeah, you're right. Maybe ignoring it isn't the right word. It's nearly, I think what I'm trying to probably communicate in that it's like, I just don't, I try not to let it take a hold. Mm. You know, so it's it's nearly diminishing its power as much as possible. Now, yeah, is there a there, there is potentially another opposite to that or another reaction to that that then happens? But for me, that's definitely been an approach that I've yeah enacted for a pretty long time. Where it's like, okay, well, I'll acknowledge it, and I won't yeah. like. It's not ignoring it to the point that oh that didn't happen or it didn't exist. Like I'll acknowledge it. But I won't – I actually think it's nearly opposite. I won't hold on to it. Like I won't generally make it too big a part of my story. You know, like I'll, I'll park it somewhere and be like, well, I just don't really – if this thing can't help me or I can't use it in any positive way, then there's no point giving it too much, too much credit or light. Because you've got to also think as well, like these instances of shame, generally they're put on us by somebody else. Like it's mm. not a situation that we've created. So I'm a pretty big believer that just of extreme ownership, 
right? Like even if it is or it isn't my fault, I'll generally just be like, okay, well, that's the reality. And there's a great quote, I can't remember what book it was, but it essentially says that the best way to get on with things is just to assume that everything is your fault. Then you can just yeah, move on with Jocko's it. Book. You know? yeah. yeah, it's like Jocko's book. It's Charlie Munger, I think. It's There's a few people there. Whereas if you get to be just being driven by other people's judgments or their perspectives and stuff, I just, I've never really found it to be something that helps me in any way. So like, like a kind of, a, I can't really think of one instance where somebody's either tried to shame me or put me down other than it may be fueling me to wanting to prove them wrong, where it's actually helped me in any way, shape or form. Have you ever felt shame that's not, thrown at you by somebody else have you ever felt just shame on your own like yeah yeah internal shame yeah that's another yeah that's question. what i mean i yeah, mean i understand you, where you're coming yeah, from I'm, how about I'm the shame that is kind of self-inflicted yeah from the from our own judgments yeah you're right <laughs> that, that is too <laughs> yeah even now if you think about like yeah the big ones that if i'm looking at this list right now I'd probably be like where shame could exist would be its roles as a parent or in relationships, its mm-hmm. roles as a creator, as an entrepreneur, as a leader. You know, there's, I think that's the thing, you know, and, and even that nowadays it's, it's around practicing and how to observe the realities of what's taking place. Because I was thinking about this even the other day, you know, as we go through COVID and we go through the pandemic, it's like, well, what, what, what are the things that my identity are attached to? where if I then lost that, I'm going to feel shame. And how can you nearly take preventative measures so that you're ready for it if that ever does happen? And mm-hmm. for a lot of us, I think the pandemic really highlights that. You know, if, if you have too high expectations or you're too attached, we, we spoke about this earlier in the episode, if you're too attached to something, it, that's where shame can live and probably fester as well. So, Yeah. I mean, I, I asked me. that. That was me untangling in the straight jacket. Yeah, yeah, I don't, that's think, okay, there, okay. I don't think if there was any anything. I, I, but really I, I like it that we're getting tangled because I feel that when we don't get tangled, it means we sometimes aren't potentially mm. looking at these in a deep enough way and challenging ourselves enough, right? Yeah, By us getting tangled sure. is, a, I, I think, a really good bit of evidence that we're actually really trying to understand this. My thought went to one place where I remember listening to a podcast by a comedian. I can't remember who it was now, but it was a, I, I do remember it was a comedian who was quite, quite overweight, quite obese. And I remember him saying this. He said that one of the ways that I would stop bullies from being able to hurt my feelings is I would immediately say to them things like, oh, let me guess, you're going to make, make jokes about me being fat. You're going to make jokes about my love handles. You're going to make jokes about, me being flabby, yeah, really original, man. And he goes, the moment he said that, he just took all the ammunition away from the bully. And I just remember that some reason. And I just thought the bully kind of represents sometimes our own minds, right? If, if we just call some things out, then that part of our brain that represents the bully, you, you take all the ammunition away from them. They're like, well, um, okay, well, you know, and then they just don't have anything left. Mm. It, it's why I, I really agree with Brene that there is a power to calling out the things we feel when calling it out when we feel shame. Yeah, like you just call it out. Yeah. And and I, I do remember a few moments of this where 
yeah, I'm just thinking of this moment where I something happened and then I caught it out. I just go, oh man, I shouldn't be doing that. That's just by doing that, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be a jerk if I do this. And just by saying it, it helped me not do the thing that would make me a jerk. Yeah, I like that. Just as you were saying that, I had one an instance of this just the other day, and it was something okay. so simple. I was just scrolling, you know, just scrolling on like Instagram or something, mm-hmm. and it got to the mm-hmm. point, and I just caught myself, and I'm like. What am I what doing? Am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? Like you feel just that little bit of shame. You know, it's not, yeah. a, it's not oh, a, absolutely. an overcomable amount of shame, but it's like there is so many other things that I could be doing right now. Like I just scroll through that thing just mindlessly. For Dude, ages. you, you have no, no idea how much shame I feel when I'm on my phone and I don't realize the audio is on. And then I, sh- I, I swipe past like a random video that's TikTok that's reposted on YouTube and then that music goes off and then Pei Wen thinks I'm watching TikTok. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It was just, damn it. No. And then, and then yeah, I have that look of shame. shame. I can't look her in the eyes. <laughs> but shame. it's. Oh, there's so many. Oh, the, yeah, there's just so many. But but I think. We were the, doing the homeschooling the other day. We missed, you know, missed an ex- an assignment that Romeo had to do. And even just something like that. Like <laughs> then the teacher like writes a message saying, Romeo hasn't put in his test yet. And I'm like, oh my God, that was on my watch. Like, there's a bit of shame. But then you try to, then you try to like counteract it. It's like, oh, it's not that important. Like, he's only five. Like, he'll be able to make up the test at some point. (laughs) But that's again just a result of shame, right? Like, you're trying to justify the action. But yeah. Well, First, first of all, to, to really clear this up as well, there's, you know, there's two types of shame, one that you feel yourself and one that mm. other people throw at you. And I think we've discussed the one that we feel ourselves a little bit, especially with that one. The way to get over those, the way to remedy that is to call it out, build awareness on it. Mm. Now, what about the yeah. shame that other people throw at you? You know, when other people make you feel shame. Yeah. And again, I, I create content online. You know, I, I don't get <laughs> millions of views or anything like that. However, there are people who critique what I do and yeah. it's funny because I've talked about this before. They, they don't critique it publicly. They always do it in the DMs, which is really fun. Mm. But it's just, how do you deal with that shame? For me, the simplest rule with criticism or feedback is I only give it any weight if it's from somebody that has a right to be providing feedback on that thing. Yeah, that's a good one. Right, like that, that's just number one rule. Like if it's coming yeah. from someone that's never a, experienced that, or achieved it or has any level of significant input in that space mm-hmm. or isn't a user of it, I'm just completely devaluing that feedback. And I'll probably weight it as well, depending on who it comes from. So yeah. that to me is an easy one because to, to me, like feedback and criticism, I, I just personally don't relate it to shaming. I'm like, okay, this is just someone's opinion based on something that I've done. And I take a very different, I don't personalize it. I don't take it personally at all. It's like, well, it's more like, okay, well, this person's come to me with something and they've provided. Now on the category and scale of things, like, are they just venting? Is this actually something that can be used to improve it a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Um, are they actually trying to help me here? Um, do they maybe just not like me? And that's fine. Like at least now we know that they there's no real need to continue this interaction between us. Like it just maybe putting it in those buckets. But when you look into these people that sometimes share comments and send messages that are just really mean Mm. a piece of insight that I learned from Bernay linking to what you mentioned, 
I thought was really powerful. And it was this. She said that, or in some way, shape or form, she said that the people who are being really nasty, they've learned that by being nasty, that's how they can become visible. Mm. Because they're not creating anything themselves, because they're not in the arena, you know, this is a quote Bernay uses quite often, because they're not in the arena, they're not creating themselves. The only way that they're going to be heard is if they judge people who are creating stuff. And the meaner they are, generally, the more they get noticed, right? And and the sad thing that happens to that person ultimately is that they end up never contributing anything really meaningful to society. And in the end, the only form of contribution are a series of of, of mean and nasty comments. And, and, and you can only imagine what that person's inner circle is like. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of tragic and you're right. Like how, yeah. Why do we, why is the role of critic actually a job? Yeah. yeah. It makes no sense that people get paid out there just to go and criticize other people's work without actually creating any but of it, There's own. a value like, to like, that though. There's a value to that because I'll tell you this, right? And I'm just being the devil's advocate, but I'm just trying to challenge my own thinking too. Because for a moment ago, I just thought these critics are useless. But then quickly it was like, no, 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 they're useful. Because every time before I watch a movie, I check IMDb. Mm. I check Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. And that is a group of critics that helps me make good decisions. Yeah. Because anything less than a 6.87 on IMDb, I'm probably not going to watch it. Yeah. But I think there's a difference though between one – like a paid critic okay, who only provides their opinion. Whereas when you think about the IMDb rating, that's like a collective. Score yeah. Everyone okay. that's yeah, actually watched yeah. that movie yeah. or that it's not TV one show. Person. Yeah. yeah. Like, like if I'm reading like blah, blah, blah's critic in the New York times, yeah, I'm probably devaluing that more than 80,000 people that have gone and watched the show <laughs> and they've given it a rating of yeah. saying, you know, on average eight out of 10 people like this means yeah. that there's a pretty good chance I'm probably going to like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, thanks for clarifying but, that, man. That's a good point. I think but yeah, it's interesting around, yeah. The, the well, what what, what you were talking about is that the, the role of the critic, why does it even exist? Mm. You still there? Yeah. I thought you were going with a rhetoric question and then you were going to then answer it yourself. You're just re-asking, re-asking the question that I asked you a minute ago. I like that move. Just mirror it yeah. back. Let's move on. This critic one's boring. <laughs> it's like, well, well, before we, we move on, I, I think another thing that's related to guilt is uh, shame. Oh, sorry. Another thing related to shame is guilt, right? Because they're both pretty closely related. And I love the example that Bernay gives. And she says, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. Yeah. And guilt, I feel, is really important. Because if you don't feel any guilt at all whatsoever as a human being, you're probably going to be a pretty crummy human being. You're not going to be a very good person. Uh, so to me, it, it's good to have guilt, but it's no good having shame because shame doesn't really serve us. It doesn't serve mm-hmm. us. And also shame is the one thing that stops us from being vulnerable, right? And, and I think if we can learn how to manage shame better and become more resilient to shame, that allows us to 
feel the guilt, which can be very similar to shame, but guilt is very different because again, it's not it's not a personal attack on your identity. It's kind of, hey, that action is not very good. Maybe I can change the action. I can change the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was a really good differentiator for, for, for me. So, so that I know when I'm feeling guilt and I know when I'm feeling shame. And even the more and more as we progress through this episode, like just a theme that sticks out in my mind is the power of expectations. Right? Mm. Like if you think about so much of this is blanketed, whether it's shame, it's being vulnerable, it's guilt, it's not sharing, it's sharing too much. Like I think a really cool sort of maybe potentially practical application of this is just getting as much clarity as you can on your own expectations, especially for yourself. Because, and and I think, again, it ties back to the stories that we tell ourselves, understanding who we are, why we are, the way we are, what our skills are, what our strengths are, what our flaws are. Like The more you can color in that picture, you'll probably be able to have potentially a healthier level of expectations of yourself. And even when I speak to a lot of people, you know, that when we talk, talk about things like anxiety and like anxiety just to me just feels like one of the number one things is just growing at the moment mm-hmm. with so many people, right? Like this concept of anxiety. And to me, you know, without being, again, not being a medical professional, not knowing about this, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there that will be able to correct this. But to me, anxiety really is like the gap of where we envision or hope that we would be versus where we actually are right now. Mm. And the more that gap bridges, I think it starts having a very physiological, physical, mental impact on us. And then when you couple that with comparison, when it, with expectation, with pressure, with stress, with fear, like as if anxiety isn't going to bubble up. And that's what we're dealing with, right? Like this – this real crazy pressure to perform or live the biggest life possible. And that's why I think then books like this are becoming more and more popular where it's around acceptance and embracing what you currently have, because that is probably one of the best antidotes that we've got right now, which is mindfulness and gratitude and being kind to ourselves, practicing things like joy. Like imagine that, like what a crazy thing that we have to practice joy and laughter mm. and happiness nowadays. Like, that wasn't a thing that they were writing about 50 years ago. Like, hey, you know. Dude, <laughs> not in the 1980s. That, yeah, that was non-existent in my world as a – as Practice a, joy. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, if I tell my dad that – I mean, if I told my dad the, the version of my dad that, that was working two jobs, like, hey, dad, you should practice more joy. He'd be like, what the hell? No, man, make the money, right? It's like you got to make money. you got to work. You can't. Yeah. Yep. We don't have time to practice joy. We need to practice labor. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so in wrapping that thought up, like what's mm. the – because this is one of the – I think this theme exists a lot within our podcast is we're always trying to unlock and probably trying to figure out better ways to live, right? We try to learn and then we try to extract lessons and we test different approaches on how to improve – again, using the word very lightly, but happiness or contentment or energy, whatever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Like, what, like what do we take from this book that we can then use to add to that toolkit? 
I want to have a quick browse through my notes. Yeah. Do you have one on top of your mind? For me, look, the first one I'll share. How about we go back and forth yeah. a few times? Okay. The, the first one for me is, and you mentioned it, unless you're in this arena with me, I need to care less about what you say. Hmm. You know, unless you have created an online course and unless you've been a keynote speaker for the last six, seven years, unless you've been down my journey and you're in my arena, then I'm just, I'm going to give myself permission to ignore your thoughts. Mm. I'm just going to give myself that permission. And if you have been in my arena, then I'm open to it. Then I'm open to listening. Whereas I think a lot of the times I've allowed my curiosity to get the better of me. And then I'll, you know, I'll open up some of those messages and I'll look at it. And, and to be absolutely transparent, sometimes they make me feel awful. And I'll, I'll go back and I'll read it a couple of times. You know, and 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 I'm like, what am I? And then I catch myself out. And I feel shaming. I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I? Why am I on this person's profile to try to look for evidence that they live a sad life? Like, what am I even doing? And then I just mm. feel like I'm just wasting my time. So to me, it's just a reminder again because as I start to create content again, I'm starting to get a little bit of attention. So then I just have to be careful of that. So to me, unless you're in the arena with me, I'm just going to give myself that permission moving forward to. Just to yeah. ignore you. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy. Delete, block. Yeah. See I know. you later. Move on. I will do that from now on. I've got, yeah. I just have to, <laughs> I just have to prioritize that. <laughs> yeah. How about you? What's one for you? Yeah. I think just the incorporation of more emotional vulnerability stands out. You know, that, that's always one to practice a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty good at, I think, like that side of it, you know, external judgment or whatever. I've maybe got <laughs> that covered just with my innate sort of build up. But the bit that I probably don't have, which I think comes a lot more naturally to you is like, you know, when you're talking about sharing a story on stage where you can get to the emotional level where you're crying, like I just couldn't see myself doing something like that. Well, so like that is a bit of a challenge nearly is something – like, like I did the same thing like that, but I did it maybe in the form of stand-up comedy. You know, that was my version of it rather than going to the other side of the emotional depth. But I think that there's power in that. To well, I, I just quickly mentioned as well, I don't, I don't think it's powerful to go on stage and just cry. Mm. I mean, and tell a story that makes you cry. I think that was actually ineffective of me when I went on stage and cried and told that story. I became more effective as I shared that story more with people that I loved first and then work through the emotions with them. Then when I shared it in my class and didn't cry, but still felt the emotion, mm. that was the most powerful, right? Yeah. So again, just not to confuse vulnerability with just crying on stage and crying in public. It's not about that. It's about learning. You know, you have to work through those vulnerabilities before I think yeah. you can share them. Otherwise, yeah. you're not ready to share them and then you'll do more damage than good. So just to mm -hmm. clarify that. The, the, the other big one that stood out, just as you were saying that, is just that bit about just gender roles and how we feel shame. Like, I think that was quite mm. powerful. Like I'll probably yeah. go back and reread that, that a little bit more. Away. Yeah. But it's definitely one that I think I still live a little bit, which is like, Oh yeah, got to be the, you know, as much as we try to wish that we're progressive and we're the new age male, I think a lot of that still probably exists a little bit. Like mm -hmm. I know I personally mm -hmm. don't show, all that much weakness or as much as I can try to 
still probably avoid it, especially from people that I love and care about. Mm. And yeah, maybe there's something in that side of exploring that a little bit more. Well, you know what's beautiful, man? I The other day when I was eating an ice block and Xander just came around and snatched the ice block from me, mm. I pretended to cry. <laughs> you, did, you didn't pretend. You were real crying. It's all right. Just no, yeah, well, it's yeah. debatable. You can't it's tell it's an illusion. It's fine. We're being vulnerable I, and open. So right I now. cried for real. It's okay. I, yeah, so you cried for real. Thank you. I cried for real. Thank you. I cried <laughs> for real. This is a safe place. This uh, is a safe, safe place. place. Safe, safe environment. Safe environment. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. so, well then I, so then I cried. And the cutest thing happened because mm. he was just shocked. Because he's never seen me do that before. He was just shocked. He was just like, he was, oh, oh my God. Like he felt so bad. He came back and he gave it to me. And then, and, then he, and then he says to me, it's okay. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think, of course, it's important to show our kids that we're yeah. vulnerable because, yeah. you know, otherwise you end up having this false idea of who dad is. And that's that what happened vulnerable. That was That was just emotional manipulation. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was. It was. But it was a cool, it was a cool example of emotional manipulation mask. You animal. Vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, you animal. Yeah, he's gonna need. He's gonna need. Yeah, he's gonna need a counselor when he grows up. No, but one one big one for me is is kind of children related with this book, and it's that I'm going to try to help Xander write as many stories as possible to help him develop just strong foundational values and beliefs. You know, because I realize as a parent, this book. It doesn't say this particularly, but it, it's it's one of the things I took away from it. And it's that as adults, we we are the author of our own stories. We can write whatever story we, we want. We hold the pen, right? We hold the pen and we write the story. Tomorrow, if you don't like your job, you know what? You have the power to just quit it if you want to. You can, sure. You may get into financial strife, but the reality is you're in control. You can quit if you want, right? We have that pen. We hold it in our hands. This book made me realize that I, I hold Xander's pen while he's young and I'm helping him write his story because he can't write it himself yet. He, he, he actually literally can't write the story himself yet. He's four. So as a parent, we have the ability to help them write stories that form beliefs and values and ultimately create their identity. So this book helped me realize that vulnerability is an important part of the story. It's important to let the kids know that, hey, dad's not having a good day today. Dad's feeling sad. Mm. It's okay to walk them through it and let them see you like that so that they get a better idea of what being a whole human is. Like what is a whole human? Otherwise, they have this full false idea that, oh, my dad's the strongest person in the world. That's not necessarily the image that I want to create, having read well, this he- book and understanding it more now. It's powerful. I, I want the, I want them to think that my dad is human. Yeah. And that it's okay for him to be sad. It's okay for him to feel anxious. It's okay for him to feel stressed because I'm going to feel like that too. So that, you know, if I show them it's okay to feel that, then they're going to feel okay feeling it. And there's that quote from her book where she goes, um, it's not, uh, hold on, let me find it. It's a quote on parenting. It was brilliant. Oh, here, here we go. The best way to teach our children is to be and to show. How we behave and how we engage with the world is much better, are much better predictors of how our children will do in life than 
the books or parenting guides that can teach us, right? So it's it's really about how we are. So again, help your kids or write stories with them that that help them build strong beliefs and good values that create strong sense of identity. Yeah. And mine mine would be pretty similar, but maybe just a slightly different lens on what you just said. To me, just as we've gone through this episode, what I ultimately think that this is all really about, it's about being able to nearly express ourselves in the purest form. You know, mm-hmm. if you, you think about a lot of these concepts is we're trained from a very early age to evolve into something that we might not necessarily be, you know, whether mm-hmm. that's restricting beliefs or values or behaviors like, nope, yep, that's a good one. You'll get rewarded for that. That's a bad one. It's no good. No one likes that one, so don't do it. So I think that the big takeaway that I'd get out of this and that I'd like to share with others is just continue on that journey that gets you closer to being able to express the truest version of who you are. You know, now, whether that is like, and maybe even taking stock of certain parts of your life at the moment where you can't or you're not allowed to express that truest version, but building in a little bit more of that. And a few practical ways of doing that, we've spoken about it before, is write to yourself, journal, um, get a little, maybe get a little bit more confident with how you share things on publicly. And social media, like I speak to so many people that work in a role or in a job and they're like, look, I want to share these things on LinkedIn, but I know if anyone from my work sees it, it won't be good. Like that, again, it's a restraint of expression. Not real. Well, and it might be real, but either way, then you have to question that work environment you're in because ultimately Mm. if you're getting that feeling, you're in an environment that's not allowing you to truly express who you are. Um, If you're in a job and you're like, oh, wow, I'm in operations, but I should be in – marketing, you know, like take the chance on yourself, like back yourself in that aligning yourself more with who you actually are, back yourself and get confident that it probably will in the long term result in a better outcome for you because that's probably my belief. It's like if we can align ourselves with the truest version of who we are, generally it results in better outcomes. Like, Dude, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And this is my turn to say, you've hit that one on the nail. Oh, no, sorry. You've hit that one. You've hit that nail on the head, Ali. No, you've nailed that one. You've nailed that one. Yeah, on you, oh, sorry. You've nailed that one. <laughs> that's your line. Yeah. Hey, that, don't that, use that, it anymore. Really beautiful. You that, shamed me into not using it. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> hey. And, and 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 that shame I just threw at you is real because I'm in the arena with you, so you have to yeah, take that. that yeah, that, that, I have to take that, that I just bloody <laughs> feedback. I can't even ignore it because it you goes can't. against my framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's checkmate. It's, I think it's beautiful. Checkmate. I think, I, <laughs> stop it. I, I think no. it's beautiful because you're right. When we can be more of who we are, and stop having to wear masks and pretend you'll feel more free and you'll just feel more fulfilled because it's exhausting pretending to be somebody you're not. It's exhausting, it man. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like. It's like going in, imagine wearing a mask from nine to five, five days a week for 40 years. Oh. Man. I mean, having to wear our masks now when we go outside is suffocating. Imagine wearing that your whole damn career. I mean, 
true. it's exhausting. It it stops you from mm-hmm. just living. So I, I I love that, and I think that's a great way to end this episode. So thanks for that beautiful takeaway, Ali. And a big thank you to all our listeners as well. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. And look, if you've got any suggestions or ideas, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can find us on social media. My handle is at AskVin, A-S-K-V-I-N-H. What's yours, Ali? Ali Tarai, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So Ali Tarai, I'm pretty sure. You can follow Ali on that <laughs> yeah, angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just Ali Tarai. <laughs> you don't have to write. Ali I'm, pretty Tarai, sure. I'm pretty sure. That's what I think he said. So let's stick with the, what he said first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame. Uh, Shame. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm on the internet in some shape <laughs> or form. <laughs> oh, you're on the World Wide Web. But look, yeah, no, yeah, we really yeah. appreciate your joining dial us. Dial-up only, uh, though. Like, it only works if you have dial-up internet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Ali. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to end the episode. No, you're going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You just keep disrupting me as as I'm trying to wrap this up. But look, I'm wrapping it up now. Regardless regardless of what Ali says, we're wrapping this up. (laughs) See you all in the next episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Bye, everyone. (laughs) Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out.